One Sunday morning, little Johnny came down to breakfast and announced to his mother that he wasn't going to go to church. His mother said, Johnny, you always go to church. You have to go to church. Why don't you want to go to church? Johnny said, I have two reasons. Number one, they don't like me. And number two, I don't like them. Johnny's mother protested again and said, but Johnny, you have to go to church. And I have two good reasons why you should go. Number one, you're 48 years old. (laughs) And number two, you're the pastor. Hopefully you're not here this morning or watching by coercion, but out of a love for God and response to that love and a desire to worship him. I feel like we've worshipped already this morning, haven't we? Uh, the anthem, anthem was just beautiful this morning. Thank you. And now you can be my amen pew. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you this morning. It's, uh, it's always a privilege to do this and especially thank Bob for the opportunity. He sent me a postcard this week uh, in the mail and I got it yesterday and it said, Jim, you're in my prayers as you preach God's word this Sunday, Bob. When I realized that our subject matter was coming out of Romans, um, uh, you always take sort of a deep breath when you're assigned to preach from Romans. It is the deep end of the theological pool, but it is uh, of value that we do that, and uh, it's important that we preach all of God's word, and it's one of the values of the lectionary that it pushes us into places we might not normally go. Romans is a a systematic presentation of the gospel. In fact, it's the most systematic presentation of the gospel and its theology found anywhere in the scripture. In it, Paul clarifies the core concepts of the Christian faith, sin and righteousness, faith and works, justification and election, and it provides for us an essential outline of the Christian faith. It's useful, I believe, both for the mature believer and also for someone wanting a brief introduction to the Christian faith. This morning, however, I want to just tease out one thread that runs through the entire book of Romans and particularly in Romans chapter 8, and that is God's love. As I read the scripture this morning, listen for God's love. Romans 8, 26 through 39. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I can amaze myself sometimes as to how unobservant I can be. I can drive down the same road a thousand times and then one day look off to the side and see a house I never noticed before. It was there all the time I just never noticed it. Or better yet, I can totally miss things at home. My wife will hang a painting on the wall and weeks later I'll say something like, has that always been hanging there? And she'll say something like, yes dear, it's been there for months. I'm amazed how often I can miss the obvious and it makes me wonder, is the same thing possible in the spiritual realm? Can we go through life and possibly miss the important truths? Is it possible to journey through the Christian year observing Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter, following the lectionary as best we can so that we don't become synoptic gospel churches? and still somehow miss the all-important truth underlying it all, that God loves us. I believe it is. I believe it's possible to grow up in a Christian family, attend Sunday school and church, serve and give faithfully to God's kingdom, and still be spiritually sleepwalking, somehow missing the central doctrine of our faith, that the almighty creator of heaven and earth is a patient, compassionate, and forgiving father who holds each one of us with an infinite love. And it's that God, the God of love, that I'd like to talk with you about this morning. But let's pray first. Father, our rock our Redeemer, our fortress, 
our counselor, our guide. Come, we pray in this hour. Speak to our hearts. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. When Karl Barth, the well-known 20th century theologian, was asked what was the most profound truth he had discovered in all of his years of theological study, he responded by saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For no matter where you read in all the Bible, whether you read the story of creation, the story of Israel, whether you read the records of Jesus' life in Galilee or the letters of the apostles, no matter where you read in all the Bible, looming in the background, dominating the whole scene is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God. Let's examine a few things the Bible reveals about the love of God. Most sermons have three points. This one has four, and there's no extra charge for that. The first thing we're told about God's love in the Bible is that it is revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Romans 5.8, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ died for us, that proves God's love for us. Do you need proof that God loves you? Paul says, look no further than the cross, that proves God's love for us. The greatest evidence of God's love is the cross of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Now, it may be difficult for you to believe that Jesus died for you. But many have died for those they love. Some have even died for people they don't even know. Soldiers have done that in combat. But I have two daughters whom I love with all my heart. And let me be honest with you, I don't love anyone enough to lay down my child's life for him or her. In fact, it would take more love to lay down my child's life than it would be to lay down my own life. But let's say that by some strange turn of circumstance, I should have to choose between saving your life and the life of my child. And let's say that by some strange set of circumstances, I chose to save your life instead of theirs. If I did that, you could never, ever doubt my love again for you. I would have proved to you to the fullest that I love you above all else in the world. Now do you see what Paul means when he writes in Romans 8.32? He says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God's love is most perfectly revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ, God's Son. 
The second thing the Bible tells us about God's love for us is it has not been earned by us. We do not earn God's love by doing good deeds, by coming to church. We do not merit God's love by thinking noble thoughts. God loves us not because of anything he knows that we will do for him, but only because he made us and because we are his. Those of you who are parents, you might have to think back a few years now, can remember, I would hope, the day you brought home your first child from the hospital and you took that child and placed it in the crib and then you stood back and you looked at that child and you said to yourself, all right now young lady, I'm not going to waste my love on you. I'll wait to see whether or not you love me whether or not you prove yourself worthy of my love before I start loving you. No, no, that's, you didn't say that, did you? No. You just loved her from the moment you saw her. Even though she hasn't done a thing for you other than maybe keep you up regularly every night. She didn't earn your love. She didn't have to earn your love. You just loved her because she's yours. The love of God is like that. He does not withhold his love until we love him. He does not wait for us to be worthy of his love before he loves us. We do not. We cannot earn his love. He just loves us. That is all. And what does God want of us? It's the same thing you want from that child of yours, that we shall love him in return and in our own way respond to that love. But even if we don't accept God's love, even if we do not respond to it, even if we build a wall to keep it out, even if we damn our souls to eternal hell, God's love will follow us forever. This is the heart of the gospel. God's love for us cannot be earned by us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, Verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. A third thing that the Bible makes clear is that God's love for us never, never, never changes. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 that I read a while ago. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's love for us never changes. Nothing can stop God from loving us. When sorrows and troubles come into our lives, we're prone to think somehow that maybe God has stopped loving us. Every time I look out on a congregation or a large group of people, I realize anew it's just a matter of time, maybe within the next 10 years, every eye here will weep, every heart will break, and every one of us will be tempted to wonder if God has stopped loving Jeremiah says we've been loved with an everlasting love. And if through all the tragic experiences of life that come our way, we can remember that God still loves us, we'll make it through. When a father and his daughter came home from the funeral of their, the mother, there was an emptiness in that home an emptiness that only those that know what it means to wait for footsteps that they're not going to hear again can understand. That night, the father tucked the little girl into bed, and because he was so tired himself, he went on to bed as well. But the little girl was used to sleeping with a nightlight on in the hall, and so she called out to her father, Daddy, it's dark. Yes, dear, it's, it's dark, but Daddy's here. And in a moment, she called out again, Daddy, it's dark, but you love me through the darkness, don't you, Daddy? Yes, dear, Daddy loves you through the darkness. Now go to sleep. And somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, for sleep had left him for loneliness, he looked up and cried out to his heavenly Father, Oh God, it's dark, but you love me through the darkness, don't you, Father? And he seemed to hear his heavenly father say the same thing he had said to his own daughter. Yes, child, I love you through the darkness. Now go to sleep. God's love never changes. Even when we disobey him and sin against him, He does not stop loving us. This is one of the great lessons from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The son, you remember, turned his back on his father and went away into the far country. But the father did not stop loving the son. We read in the parable that the father saw him when he was still a long way off because he had looked down the road many times each day waiting for a familiar figure. The father loved the prodigal in spite of his sin. 
and God keeps loving us even when we disobey him and sin against him. The love of God revealed in the cross, which is not earned by us, never, never changes. The Bible makes one more thing clear. This is my last and final point. God's love makes demands upon us. God's love is not a grandmotherly kind of love that makes no demands. No, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Paul says, the love of Christ constraineth us in the King James. The New International puts it this way, Christ's love compels us. Or even better yet, the message version says, Christ's love moves us. And then in verse 15 of that same chapter, Paul explains why that is. When he writes, he, that is Christ, died for all. That those who live, that's you and me, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, because Christ died for us, he loved us enough to die for us. He has unrestricted claim upon our lives. And if God's love moves into our lives, his love will have the first and last word in everything we do. I close with this short story from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. If you've never read that book, I would highly recommend it to you, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He tells this story. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains unclogged and right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that starts to hurt and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing over here, putting an extra floor in up here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Amen.